Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I wanted to talk about psychopathic or narcissistic therapists and counselors. You know, people in the mental health field, professionals who have major personality issues that may or may not lead them to harm other people. Uh, So that's what I'm going to talk about today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. The reason why I want to talk about this is because famous patron Lyndon. Lyndon runs our the uh, Facebook fan page, fan group. If you want to join that, he moderates that. Famous patron Lyndon wrote in and said, Hello, Kirk. To what extent can people make it all the way to a profession as a therapist despite having psychopathic or sadistic or narcissistic traits? Can a person make it into the profession despite having a cruel nature, a sadistic style, or a domineering personality? What checks and blocks are in place to hold back people like this from entering the profession? What are your experiences with people in the profession who have dark personalities? Is it something you encounter while teaching or supervising? Do the theories actually make successful therapists who are antisocial more effective at exploiting, instrumentalizing, objectifying, and abusing their clients? I understand that you might feel averse to discussing this topic as it seems to cast a dark shadow over the profession. End of email. Excellent questions, famous patron Lyndon. Um, Before uh, going into this, uh, I want to say I don't feel averse to talking about it. I I guess I might have felt averse to talking about it before, but I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, So many of you have written me stories and accounts of therapists who are at the very least ineffective and at the worst are abusive to you. And I feel responsible for that. I'm embarrassed about it. Uh, these people make me look bad, and they and I have and I feel angry and sad about the whole thing. And I feel like it's part of my job to try to wa- raise awareness about this problem and and, and try to um, eliminate or reduce the incidence of this sort of thing. And I'll talk more about my recommendations in a second here. Okay, so another caveat before moving forward is that there is some research in this area, but not enough to really comment on. It's really hard to research this sort of thing. You, it's hard to gather a bunch of therapists together and, and have them be truthful about their personality or have them be truthful about their harmful tactics and this sort of thing. So it, it's hard to... Nail down uh, in that way, but it's also just hard to study in that personality and psychology is extremely squishy. It's people will debate whether or not it's even a hard science, and I would too. It's it's just really hard to say anything uh, concrete when it comes to this sort of thing. So, what I'm about to talk about is my sense of things, having been in the field for 20 years my sense of things uh, having worked with thousands of other therapists and my sense of things having worked under many professionals who were faculty or supervisors of mine um, and all just the, the the wide variety of people I've worked with. And I feel like I can speak to this topic with some authority. 
Okay, so famous patron Lennon asks, to what extent can people make it all the way to a profession as a therapist despite having psychopathic, sadistic, or narcissistic traits? Well, what we call this in the profession is we call it gatekeeping. We are su- – supervisors and faculty such as myself are uh, – we are responsible for keeping the gate. We need to not let someone through the gate into the profession who has issues that will, that will lead to them likely harming other people. And there's various research and literature on this. Sometimes they call – the the therapist in, impaired and they'll they'll say you need to keep the gate and prevent an impaired therapist from entering the field. I don't like that word. I, I'm actually writing about this in my upcoming book on supervision in, in in somewhat of a detailed way regarding the terminology about all this. And I also go into a number of anecdotes regarding situations in which I have had to actually keep the gate and prevent someone from entering the, entering the field. But we we all think about that supervisors or well at least supervisors and faculty are supposed to think about it and i can tell you from personal experience that uh, the all all the other supervisors and faculty that i work with it's on their mind now whether or not they live in a, in a or exist in an organization or a system that allows them to to actually have the power to keep the gate is is another issue there are faculty that i know who when they come across a student or supervisee who seems to have a personality problem that is uh, a problem and will likely present a problem for them in their with clients and in their career, the, you know, the faculty member almost always feels that anxiety. They almost always say, hmm, something's wrong here. Now, whether or not the organization that they exist in supports them in their efforts to keep the gate is a whole other thing. And when I was chair, I really tried to support people with that. And and at my in my program at Antioch University, I really try to support that. Having said that, it happens pretty rarely. Some people might think that it's something that happens frequently, but it's actually pretty rare that I identify someone in need of being prevented from entering the field. Uh, and I'll get more into that in a second as to, as to why it actually doesn't happen very often. Um, okay, so Lyndon, you're asking specifically about uh, very specific, th- three specific personality types. So we have you're asking about psychopathic trainees or psychopathic therapists, meaning that they don't have empathy or compassion for other people. And then you're asking about sadistic people, meaning that they take pleasure in harming other people. And you're asking about narcissistic people, meaning that they're extremely self-centered and self-aggrandizing. Uh, that sort of thing. So, so ha- you're asking, have I encountered these these particular personalities in my profession? And the answer is absolutely. A- as with any other profession, there are psychopathic and narcissistic and sadistic people who who live in, who work in that profession. If you took all the garbage uh, men or men and women who work in collecting garbage you would find the same distribution of personalities. If you look at politicians, you're going to see a similar distribution of personalities. Now, some personalities will tend to move into particular jobs, but but it's hard to generalize. I find that um, in any profession, you're going to get a wide variety of personalities, and it's it and it and there's there's slight increases in percentages, but but not any. Um, 
it's the, you know some people will say well all CEOs are psychopathic and it's like that's ridiculous <laughs> the research doesn't support that and uh, now might there be an, an, an a somewhat increased incidence of psychopathy in upper ranks of executive positions uh, it's hard again hard to research it's hard it's hard to know that some research seems to suggest that that CEOs and other types of positions like that tend to have somewhat more psychopathy in it but it's such a hard thing because whenever you're talking about personality, you're asking for either the the individual to report on their personality, which of course anyone can be distorted about that, or you're asking an outside observer to to report on that person and observe and assess that person, and of course that's a hard thing to do. And and some before I entered the field of assessment, I. I always thought that that psychologists had this magical ability to test people, that there were all these really complicated tests that would trick you into revealing who you are. And the fact is that that's just not true. There are some tests that help in that way that are a little tricky, but it, it it's really just one of those things that we'll just, at this point in our science, we just have no way of really locking this down. I mean, we barely understand the concepts that we're trying to measure, let alone actually measuring those concepts within people. So, but anyway, so your question is, have I encountered sadistic, narcissistic, psychopathic people in my profession? The answer is yes, absolutely. But, but here's, here's the weird thing. The first thought that, that people will have, cause, cause sometimes I'll complain about someone at work or something. I'll just be like, Oh my God, there's this person that I'm complaining about. And whenever I complain about that person uh, to someone who doesn't work in my profession, they will say to me, how can that be, how can that person be a therapist? They'll say, you know, is that, is that person a therapist? They'll be like, yeah, that person's a therapist. And they'll say, that person is crazy. They're insane. How are they possibly a therapist? They sound so immature or so reactive or just so confused about life. And when I first started in the profession, I remember thinking that too. I, I would look at my classmates or I'd look around at other people in the field and I'd be like, man, that, something's wrong with that person. I, I'm sure they are terrible as a therapist. Well, here's the thing. After supervising and teaching and working alongside thousands of other professionals, what I'm here to tell you is that it's actually strangely um, the case that these problematic people can actually be excellent therapists. Sometimes their problems can actually help them as a therapist, but at the very least, what I've seen is a lot of times it it, it doesn't hinder them. The, the thing that I can I can say is that being a therapist, it's a job. It's 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 something that you do for a living, right? You don't do it for free. You do it because you get paid, and so all of us therapists are we're incentivized to try to provide the best service possible. And so let's say you're narcissistic and you are very self-centered and you have a hard time with empathy, but you can you can kind of access a version of empathy or, or you can at least kind of fake empathy by listening a lot. Uh, and you learn over time, particularly as you're being trained, that that is required of you. And if you don't do that, no one wants to come see you and you'll get complaints or something like that. So, you know, it's sort of like, can a psychopathic person be a caring nurse in a hospital? Can, can a psychopathic person uh, be a, a nun 
in a convent and actually help human beings. Can a psychopathic person be a very friendly cashier at a McDonald's? The, the answer is yes, because it's a job. They, everyone understands that they're not in their normal, they're not in their living room hanging out. They are at, at a job and they need to put on a certain persona in order to provide a service to, a, to people who are paying for a service. So in some ways, what I'm saying is that these people, narcissistic, psychopathic, sadistic people can suppress their urges or they can fake empathy and compassion. Um, uh, another way of saying it is that they can access their empathy and compassion temporarily while they're at work. Um, having, having said that, though, there are plenty of therapists who are out there actively harming their clients. So it's not as if people who have personality problems are immune to harm. Um, having, having said that, it's not as if the people who harm their clients are necessarily narcissistic, psychopathic, or sadistic. There are plenty of therapists who are harmful to their clients that actually don't have a personality disorder. They're just either mistaken or they don't understand or they're immature or something like that. But but anyway, there there are plenty of therapists who are narcissistic, who are sadistic, who are psychopathic, who actually are harming their clients. All you got to do is listen to episodes that I've made before about this topic. Uh, the most recent one was uh, a therapist. What was it called? A therapist loses his license. I think is that what I called it. There was a whole series that I did. I think three different episodes. A therapist kisses his client. Um, this this therapist, I don't know him. But he lost his license. Uh, a patron, a patron wrote in about the full account of what he did. He was very sexually um, exploitative, is the word for it. And uh, my very distant assessment is that there is something wrong with his personality, given his behavior. That it's not just a misunderstanding or anything. There's something. There's something deeply wrong with the guy. And. Uh, and it led him to be sexually exploitative in this really stupid way. That my my again, this is all just distance um, assessment. I have no idea who this guy is. I've never met him. But from the client's uh, account of what had happened, and from his account, because I actually read his 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 uh, session notes because she gave them to me. He he just he um, he was exhibiting narcissism in that he was doing all these exploitative things sexually to his client and he didn't even recognize that they might be a problem and in his notes he was he wasn't justifying it he was just talking about it uh, someone who isn't narcissistic or psychopathic would at least recognize that what they're doing is wrong and they would try to sort of cover their cover their ass in their progress notes right they would say like well, she asked me to do it, and you know, there, are, there, are, people would figure out a way to sort of cover their tracks. But this guy had nothing in there about that. He just, he just, he completely thought that it, uh, his sexually exploitive escalation with this client was completely okay. And there's something you've. There's got to be something wrong with you. There's got to be something different about your personality that would lead you to think that way because all of us therapists are at the very least paranoid about uh, most of us are paranoid about doing anything wrong 
Um, so the fact that he didn't have any red flags seemingly now, maybe he had tons of red flags. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, there, in my experience, there are definitely people who have personality disorders who are actually out there harming their clients. You can watch the Netflix show gypsy for an example of this. It's not a very satisfying show. I did a whole episode on it, but, uh, but it provides an example of someone who has a personality issue. That's a therapist. Um, when these people are doing bad things to their clients, psycho, psycho, psychopaths, narcissistic people, it's not usually horrible. It's, it, uh, it's not usually like what you might have in the movies where, uh, like in Gypsy or something, or in another movie where the therapist is, is actively, I don't know, poisoning the client uh, or trying to kill the client or try to manipulate the client into becoming a slave or something. It's not usually like that. It's usually more subtle and mild than that. Um, like with the example that I had with the therapist that lost his license, it it was bad, but he at any given time, the client was given some power to push back. And at a certain point, it got too much for her, and she did push back. And he tried to convince her to come back to therapy, but he wasn't super pushy or manipulative about it. And so uh, it it was bad and terrible, and he lost his license, and he should have lost his license. But, but the uh, degree of the maliciousness or something is, in my experience, it's not usually very intense. Um, you know, it's predatory, but it's not... Um, there, there are ways in which a therapist, if they really wanted to use their power to harm someone, they could actually really um, amp it up. Now, can a therapist and do, do therapists in rare circumstances use their power to absolutely harm their clients? Yeah, it happens. And I've heard those stories from listeners, but it's, it's not very frequent. I, again, this is speculation based on anecdotal experience, but if you're a harmful person, particularly a sadistic person, and, or if you're really out to get people, being a therapist isn't really the best job to have because there's so many things that you there, – there's so many reasons why you have to be compassionate and caring and, and selfless that it would be either difficult to exploit others or you would be detected pretty quickly. There, there are plenty of jobs out outside of the field of mental health in which will not only allow you to be exploitative, but will actually actually reward you. You know, one job that pops into my mind is sales, right? If you're a car salesman, now again, plenty of car salesmen are compassionate, nice people who are just doing their jobs. But, but imagine that, you know, you're a narcissistic, psych, psychopathic person and you're really out for your own personal gain. If you're a car salesman, you're going to be rewarded for your predatory practices, right? Tricking some vulnerable person into buying a car, you get a commission. And and it's sort of expected in society that, well, you're, you're a car salesman and that's your job. You're supposed to try to get the sale. So now, again, sometimes I talk crap about other professions and people will email me, and rightfully so. Recently, I, um, I said something about how therapists are the only ones I think I was talking with Bob in an episode and I was I said something to the effect of therapists are the only people who worry about charging their 
clients too much or something. And I, I think I said something like, you know, I don't think heart surgeons worry about their salaries. And that's a pretty gross um, generalization. There's plenty of physicians, and I'm, I'm guessing heart surgeons as well, who absolutely try to, to establish some equality regarding their service and their their salaries. Uh, there are plenty of professions that involve people who are very caring and, and actually do worry about their salaries. I think what I was saying in that episode was that it's it's funny to me whenever I talk with therapists, it's, it's universal. 100% of the time, especially therapists who are just starting out, they all have this guilt about charging their clients for service. Uh, and I just I, I think what I should have said, or maybe I did say this in that past episode, was that it's just ridiculous that as a profession, as professionals, we would feel guilty for making a living. It, it's just a, a just a silly thing. And I think what I was saying is I wonder what other professions worry about this in the same way. And I'm guessing there are people in other professions that never worry about this. They They don't say... Ooh, I don't like to charge for my service. I think a part of that comes from the innate compassionate quality of therapists. You know, if you're compassionate and caring and social justice oriented, then you're attracted to the field of mental health. So it's a certain per- sort of person who enters the field that's going to say stuff like that. But another factor is 99.9% of us all started out as unpaid interns. We were volunteers who were volunteering our time during our graduate training. And and also at that, at that time, most of us felt as though we didn't even deserve to be an intern. <laughs> There's this self-esteem problem in a, lot of prof- in a lot of mental health professionals. And so we feel when we're starting out in the profession, we're like, well, please let me volunteer at your place so I can work for free. And then when you graduate, you feel like, well, surely I'm not good enough to be uh, paid for this job yet because I'm, you know, I'm a piece of shit. And so because you're treated like a piece of shit when you're an intern. And uh, so I'm always trying to turn that around with my uh, with my new therapist. I'm, I'm trying to pump them up by saying you're a professional. You are a highly specialized clinician. You deserve to get paid and don't ever have guilt about getting paid. And even potentially paid kind of well because, again, you're a highly specialized clinician who actually has value in the society. Anyway, so yeah. Uh, So on one hand, it's weird that I have come across people who seem very odd and very undifferentiated and very personality problematic sort of people. And yet when I actually look into it, their work with their clients is going pretty well. I, I've even had supervisees like that who I look at them and I'm like, man, there's something off about your personality. I mean, I, I've I've supervised hundreds of people. So again, a lot of averages, I'm going to come across some people that have problematic personalities. And then with those people, I really start to look into their clients and actually list, make sure I observe more of their sessions, maybe even talk with some of their clients and, and really try to make sure that this therapist is providing a good service. And what I find is that a lot of times these people provide excellent service to their clients. And my guess is, is that, that when they sit down in that chair as a therapist, they put on 
a very professional clinical uh, persona that actually allows them to be helpful. Now, as soon as they go home, their their life is falling apart, but when they actually go to work, they can hold it together. Having said that, like I said, there are plenty of people with personality problems or not that are actually out there harming their clients in a very real way. Okay, so let's go on to your next question here, Lyndon. What checks and blocks are in place to hold back people like this from entering the field? Checks and blocks. Is that a is that a uh, Irish? You're you're from Ireland, right, Lyndon? <laughs> I know. I'm pretty sure you're from Ireland. And um, checks and blocks uh, in the United States, we might say. Uh, what do we call it? Checks and balance? Anyway, what what checks and blocks are in place to hold back people like this from entering the, the profession? Well, we do have some checks and blocks. We have, uh, we have the complaint system, right? You can complain to the licensing board, given that the person is a licensed professional because coaches are not licensed. But if you're a marriage family therapist, counselor, psychologist, social worker, uh, psychiatrist, nurse practitioner, then you're you're licensed. The state um, holds you to a certain uh, requirement for licensure. And so you can complain to that state licensing board as a way of taking away a license or sanctioning a license or something. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a good system, but many clients don't know about it or they don't even know how to use it or they get bogged down in all the paperwork and everything. And, so it, the complaint, the licensing board system could be a little better, in my opinion, a little bit more ease of access, so to speak, uh, and maybe a little quicker in its response time. It also lacks teeth, in my opinion. Whenever I have come across therapists who have had a successful complaint waged against them, I'm always surprised at how soft the punishment is. Um, so, but, you know, I guess rehabilitation is better than just punishing someone. But anyway, so we have the complaint department of health system. We also have the civil court system. You can sue someone, right? But it's really difficult to sue a therapist. It's a very ambiguous area of trying to demonstrate to a jury or to a judge that you were harmed by a therapist. Plus, a therapist can pretty easily, if they wanted to, they could pretty easily drum up a narrative that makes the client look like a crazy person. And people tend to believe therapists over clients. And so the civil court, civil court's there, and it's definitely something that has been used effectively to to put an end to harmful therapists. But it it's something of a, of a bad situation in that... W- we're sort of waiting for something bad to happen and then waiting for that one brave client who has time to step forward and privilege to do so to actually step forward. It's it's not actually trying to prevent it from happening, right? That's where faculty and supervisors come in in terms of in terms of gatekeeping, preventing people from entering the field. But I'm here to tell you as someone who has been tasked with gatekeeping hundreds of maybe thousands of people over the past 20 years. I'm here to tell you that it's pretty difficult to detect a therapist who is going to be harmful. Um, as I said, I have looked into therapists who seem like they're going to be harmful. And then I look into them and I realize that they're not harmful. 
So just because, uh, just because someone comes across as weird or odd or even defensive, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're harmful. In fact, they could be excellent therapists. That's what's strange about it. So, so there's that confusion. And, and if someone is harmful, it's hard to detect because we're just not there. The, the nature of supervision and the nature of being a faculty member uh, is that the intern or the trainee is out there in the field by themselves behind closed doors providing a service to someone for several hours a day uh, to several different clients. And the supervisor is outside of that office and the supervisor relies on the trainee to report what's happening. And if a trainee decides to omit certain details, then then the trainee is going to omit certain details. So it's, it's hard to monitor that situation. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's a problem. The, the solution that I would propose is that to all of this is that we need to increase awareness about this problem in general. We need society to understand and the profession to understand that there are clients out there being harmed or treated unfairly. Because I think there's this general belief that therapists are all good or that it's a rare thing. And yeah, I mean, we could say it's rare, but it's common enough that I don't think we're doing enough to put an end to it. Particularly kind of like the low-grade stuff, like clients who are late all the time or who talk about themselves too much or are a little um, physically inappropriate with their clients or something. So we need to raise awareness that this is indeed a problem. We, we also need to increase uh, the general public's awareness about what to do if they are bothered or harmed by their therapist. If you just pulled the average client and said, okay, let's say you don't like what your, what your therapist is doing, what do you do? I would guess through anecdotal experience that most clients would be like, I have no idea. They might have a general sense that they could report the person to the government, but they don't know where to go. Now, all that information is supposed to be in a disclosure statement, and it's in mine. But how many people actually know it's in the disclosure statement or even where the disclosure statement is? And so it's a hard, it's a hard thing for people to know about, and I think that we need to increase awareness so that people can actually utilize those systems. We also need to increase the rigor of supervision. We need to, uh, I'm, again, my upcoming book on supervision talks a lot about this. Supervision is a, an extremely important responsibility that is often not taken as seriously as it needs to be. And supervisors need to be watching more carefully and they need to take the gatekeeping responsibility very, very seriously. I know supervisors who will say things like, well, you know, they'll just sort of kick the can down the road and just be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure some um, someone else will come across this supervisee and, and deal with this, but I just don't really want to deal with it. Uh, we also need more direct observation and supervision, which basically just means more money. So, so right now I have, I don't know, a dozen supervisees, 20 supervisees or something. And for the most part, Whenever I supervise them, it, it's us meeting either one-on-one -on -one or in a group situation, and, and the supervisee, the trainee, is telling me what they did in session. And, it, and, then, and then if I do directly observe, it's usually through audio uh, recording. So, so, the, so the, the supervisee will record their sessions, and then they'll play the, that audio for me. Well, 
they get to choose which session they record. They get to choose what clip of that session they play for me. And so if someone was a terrible therapist, they could probably hide that from me for a long period of time. Or if someone was a terrible therapist, I might not detect it for a while because I just don't have, uh, because I'm not watching that carefully. So now, that's not because I'm lazy. That's because the system is such that I'm, I'm actually uh, de-incentivized to watch people more closely because it requires a lot more time and effort for me to watch them more closely that I'm not actually going to get paid for, or I would have to charge the supervisees for it, which would drastically increase the cost of supervision to them. So, so what I do is I just follow the standard of supervision, which is uh, the, basically what I'm describing. Now, some supervisors out there will actually watch their, their supervisees behind a one-way mirror, or they'll be in the same room with them all the time. And so some, some supervisors have that luxury, but most supervisors, in my experience, don't have that luxury. And so what I would propose is that if we're going to do a better job gatekeeping and a better job watching uh, for problematic therapists, there needs to be more money in, in the whole system, which basically means more tax dollars spent on this, so that supervisors can actually spend more time observing the the supervisee's work. We also might benefit from having longer periods of supervision or more requirements for supervision. Now, all of you new therapists and and interns out there are probably groaning when I say that because you are already required to do so much supervision. And maybe what I should say is maybe not more supervision but just better supervision. The the whole field of supervision, and again, I write about this all in my book and provide many anecdotal um, stories, including uh, stories in which I have made mistakes as, supervi- as a supervisor. The state of supervision is pretty bad, in my opinion, and according to a lot of research that I lay out in my book. And so if there was better supervision, presumably there would be... Uh, a therapist would be less likely to be harmful because they'd be better trained. And also a therapist would be more likely to be detected if they were harmful and therefore gate kept. Anyway, before moving forward, let's take a break. What do you say? All right, we're back. Uh, if you haven't become a patron yet, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron of the podcast, you get access to hundreds of our uh, patron only episodes and also, there's no ads for patrons. So if, if you're a patron of the podcast, you don't have to sit through any ads, which I think is a big benefit. All right. So Lyndon asks some more questions here. He asks, do the theories actually make successful therapists who are antisocial more effective at exploiting, instrumentalizing, objectifying, and abusing their clients? Yeah. I mean, we all do this, honestly. We're all, all, all therapists are prone to using our theories and our power and our privilege to harm anyone, even if it's not clients. We are prone to doing it to our spouses, you know. When Whenever a therapist gets into a fight with their spouse, they at least have a temptation to say, look, I'm the expert on communication and relationships, and you're not, and so let me tell you how you're wrong. So it's just, it's just human nature. When, whenever anyone has power, they are they're likely at least to be tempted to use that power when it suits them, right? And so therapists are no different than this. And, and I've experienced this. I had a professor 
who a long time ago who had tremendous power over my life and and I was terrified of her and she would just randomly abuse me in class and outside of class so I never knew when she would strike and I was always just walking around in eggshells around her just just terrified of when the next time she would come down hard on me and I'll never forget this one time we had this one-on-one meeting and I, it was some sort of supervision or some sort of consultation, just regular teacher student interaction. And I went into that movie and into that, into that meeting try, saying, I, I want to have a, I want to try to build a relationship with her because I feel like for some reason she, you know, has it out for me. And so maybe if I am really nice to her and we can build a relationship and she can stop attacking me all the time. And so I was, I was, trying to build this relationship with her and we have this conversation and, and all I was just trying to do was just to please her. I was just, I was just trying to make her happy. Everything she said, I was like, Oh, okay, good. I was, so I was, cause I was, again, I was trying to, um, you know, build this relationship with her. And as we were talking about various different issues, she somehow manipulated the conversation into this zone that I suddenly realized we were, we were talking about my privilege over her. <laughs> and I, it, it wasn't until like later that I had to analyze the whole conversation. I was like, wait, how did we get to a place where the, the main gestalt of the conversation was that I had power over her, which was ridiculous because I had no power over her and she had all this power over me and she was always using it against me. Well, again, I'm not this person's assessor or clinician, but this professor has a, has a profound personality problem. <laughs> I had so much contact with her that I, I can tell you that with high levels of confidence, particularly because it's not only me, but there's hundreds of other people who have experienced it too. And I've talked with dozens of other people about this particular professor and they will, they'll all say the same thing. They'll just be like, yep, <laughs> that was my experience too. And I've talked with coworkers of hers and blah, blah, blah. And so there was something profoundly wrong with this person's personality, and she would manipulate people into – she would use her power essentially to intimidate and to contr- and control other people and to make everyone feel as though they needed her and to make everyone feel as though they were blessed to have attention from her. It was this very – very excellent way of manipulating everyone around her. And many people fell for it. But the more contact you had with her, the more you realized that something was wrong. And the more you talked to other people, the more you realized, oh, this isn't just me. Because she had a way of making it feel like you were crazy and that there was something wrong with you. She she also was kind of smart. She had at least enough knowledge to come across as like someone of authority. And she, she, so anyway, I'm in this conversation. I'm just trying to please her. And at this point, I think it's just me. I didn't realize that all these other people were suffering from her. So I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. And then she somehow turns the conversation around to saying that I had all this privilege and power over her and that I would needed to be responsible with that power and that I needed to um, acknowledge my privilege over her. And so I started, I was, so in the moment I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I acknowledge my power. 
And she's like, so what are you going to do with that privilege? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to become more humble and I'm going to try to um, help you out with that. And she's like, good. And then I just felt completely insane. And again, I would, I left that conversation and then went on this whole, you know, epic journey regarding uh, my feelings about it and reaching out to other people. And then I looked back and I was just like, my God, that was masterful how she got me to, to say those things and, and to believe them. Um, you know, th- there's a certain level of, we might call it psychopathy or we might call it narcissism. We might call it just something generally wrong with someone's personality. We call it, we could, we, maybe we could even say she's traumatized or, terribly insecure, something is deeply wrong with someone that would create such such feelings in so many different people. So many people around her were terrified of her. So many people around her didn't like her. So many people around her had to go to therapy just to cope with being around her. I mean, I knew people that worked with her that went to therapy for two years just because they just had to deal with her at work and she was she has she's so toxic okay so and she was a clinician she was a therapist and uh, it's hard to imagine her being a good therapist but i had be, i had no reason to believe that she that she was a bad therapist was the thing now i didn't have access she was my professor i didn't have access to her clients but but given my experience with other people like her, when I do have that power, I'm here to tell you that sometimes those people actually can be good therapists. That's what's so weird about this. Now, she could also be extremely exploitative and, and harmful and horrible. There's also that possibility as well. And I actually saw some evidence of that. She had some weird boundaries that she had with students and stuff. Um, hard, hard to tell. But anyway, so... So and so, I, I could I could tell you story after story of people like this that I've bumped into in the field. It, it's actually kind of weird. I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this episode, and the people that scare me the most, the people who uh, I've been traumatized as an adult the most, are people who are in the field. Now you could say it's because I've been in the field for so long that most of the sort of randos that I have to deal with are in the field. So maybe it's just a, a factor of that. But but if I was to catalog like the four people on this planet that I really despise, they are people in the field that I've had to work with. <laughs> and And it's just hard to imagine them being good therapists. But again, as I said, it's hard to know if they're bad therapists or not. Are they exploitative of their coworkers and of their students and their supervisees? Absolutely. I've absolutely seen that. I've seen people who have issues with their personality. Uh, I've, well, let's just put it this way. If you're in a position of power, particularly the more power you have and the more people you have power over, the more likely that a part, whatever sort of personality fly you have, it's it, the more likely it is that that flaw is going to become problematic for somebody. You know, if if you're if you have no one under you and you you just go to work and you do what you're told, then your personality flaws don't nec- don't don't usually come out in that situation. And, and if they do, it means that your personality flaw is very intense. But when I was program director, I had dozens of professors who were working under me. 
I had hundreds of students who were underneath me. I had all of these on-site supervisors and staff people at the university. And I I had to deal with so many people when I was program director, which is part of the reason why I didn't like that job. It It was just too overwhelming. There's too many people I had to manage. And and when I was in a bad mood, people people knew it, <laughs> you know, because I had power and I didn't have to mask my bad my bad mood to those people, or at least I didn't feel like it. And so, so if I was particularly you know uh, grumpy that day, or if I was feeling the need to be narcissistic in a in a moment, or if I felt the need to gain some control or something. Because I had power and because I was in contact with so many people, people would feel it. I'm guessing. No one ever said anything, but uh, if they were to be truthful, I'm guessing they would say that. And so so the the people that I have been affected by are people in, who have power over me, essentially, or at least on the same level, and, and their personality issues come out. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I could – geez, I could tell you so many horrible stories. They're not on the level of like murders or sexual assaults or anything, but they are, they're on the level of bullying. Let's just put it that way. Like there's, there's in my profession, there are isolated individuals who have the sort of personalities that lead them to bully other people, probably not their clients. Um, now, um, let me just comment a little bit on something else. Um, the, Psychopathy as a personality is on a spectrum, right? And there are various different elements and components of psychopathy. Well, one of the elements of psychopathy is that you don't care about society's rules as much as someone else does. And to become a therapist, you kind of have to be at least a little psychopathic in that in, in that you have compassion, so it's not a matter of not having empathy, but you're not a rule follower. Therapists generally are uh, are not super rule-following sort of people. Now, you might be the sort of person who likes to follow rules, but you you definitely have a thing about – you definitely have a question about society, right? If you're a therapist, you're thinking, well, you know, some of society's rules are okay, but some of them are not. Well, that just that questioning of society and that little bit of pushback on – the establishment is is on the psychopathic spectrum. It's it's just like the beginning of the psychopathic spectrum, or uh, what we call psycho. What do you call it? Psychodeviancy, uh, or it's one of the it's one of the measures on the MMPI. But anyway, so so there's that. So therapists uh, often score high, or at least a little bit higher than normal in that in the psychopathic deviancy. Uh, realm. Another thing that therapists tend to be is narcissistic because the belief that you can help people and the belief that you are special enough to help someone requires you to have a little bit of some self-esteem. Now, this doesn't mean that therapists have high self-esteem. So it's, it's, it's a different thing because some therapists have really low self-esteem. But on average, when you lump all therapists together, there's there's a general higher than average um, amount of narcissism, 
And and then when you get to the level of supervisor and an instructor and podcaster, by the way, you're going to see even higher levels of narcissism. I mean, listen to me right now. I've been talking for, uh, was it 40 minutes? You have to have at least some notion of self-esteem to talk into a microphone for 40 minutes and feel like anyone would possibly be interested in that. You need to have some level of narcissism just to start a podcast. You know? You're just sitting there, you're like, you know what? I got things to say, and people should listen to it, and I'm going to start a podcast. And so now, that doesn't mean it's malignant narcissism. It doesn't mean that you don't have compassion, because I certainly know I have compassion and empathy for other people. But this belief that you're special. And so are therapists more likely to be on the psychopathic spectrum, be on the narcissistic spectrum, yes. And there's data to support that. But there's a big difference between mild, um, benign narcissism and psychopathy and malignant narcissism, malignant psychopathy. Now, the sadistic personality that, Lyndon, you ask about, I don't have much experience. I haven't bumped into that in the field. I Maybe I have and just didn't know it, but I, when I thought about it, I'm like, have I, do I know any sadistic therapists, supervisees, professors? And I'm just like, no, I don't know. I, sadism is a rare personality trait to begin with. And I'm guessing that if you are, if you do have a sadistic personality, you're probably not going to go in the field because there's other jobs that would absolutely be more in line with allowing you to enact your sadism. Things like, I don't know, man, what would a what would a sadist want to do as a job? Maybe a maybe a tattoo artist. <laughs> now again, uh, I know tattoo artists and I know them to be extremely nice people, but but I'm just trying to imagine. It's like oh, I I want to harm other people, and I I get pleasure from harming other people. The surgeon, <laughs> and again. It's just, I'm sure most surgeons and tattoo artists are uh, have the normal range of personality traits as anyone else. But I'm just trying to think what a sadist, maybe there's research on this. Like what what does a sadistic personality uh, person uh, choose for a job? Or, or do they just choose any old job just like anyone else does? Do they just sort of fall into a, an occupation like anyone else does? I don't know. An interesting question. But anyway, so... Um, the, another thing I'll say is that for some for some personality traits that are problematic in your personal life, it can actually help you as a as a clinician. So, for instance, if you're if you're a little bit borderline, you it actually can help you as a therapist. It's not gonna it's not gonna be it's not gonna help you in your relationships because it's a vulnerability and it's it tends to cause overreactivity and and intense feelings of rejection and sensitivity to minor rejections. But when you're a therapist, it can help you because people who have who are on the borderline spectrum are trained from an early age to be very perceptive of other people's emotions and to be very um, just very adept at knowing the other other people's mental states. And so if you are uh, slightly borderline as a therapist, you will actually have a greater ability to empathize with other people uh, in general, depending on the person. Now, if you have full-blown 100% pers- you know, borderline personality disorder, then there, com- there comes a point when it will actually hinder your ability to empathize and hinder your ability to um, not 
have countertransference that will get in the way. Um, not to say that full-blown borderline personality disorder people can't be clinicians because they can. I, I, Marsha Linehan is a famous person who has done a lot of wonderful things for people, and she has come out as someone who has borderline personality. So, so actually, that's a really great example. So, Marsha Linehan at University of Washington has come out. I, I don't. I, I haven't read all the articles, but. From what I understand, she's come out and said, I have borderline personality, and she has helped thousands of, if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, because she is a consummate professional, and, and when she's working, she is, she is working. She's at work. She's not, she's not triggered as easily by her clients because they're clients. They're not people in her personal life. Now, I have heard that Marshall Linehan can be quite... Uh, abrasive to work with as a coworker, but again, that's just anecdotal. I think actually Bob might have told me that. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that on the internet. Um, I have no uh, experience with her, so maybe she's a very lovely person. It's all rumor, and I suspect that some of it's overblown because she's a famous person, and people like to make fun of or like to hack on famous people. So who knows? But anyway. Um, all right. So, Lyndon, I hope that answers your question. Again, this whole talk was anecdotal based. It was not based on research. Research is hard to gather on this, and the research they do have on it is not um, – it's just hard to measure all this kind of stuff because it involves so many different little factors. So what's the final word? The The final word is that – are there psychopathic, narcissistic people who work in the field? Yes. Is there a higher rate of of malignant, psychopathic, and narcissistic people who work in the field? I would say no. Just anecdotally, I would surmise there's there's a lower incidence of malignant personality disorder people who work in the field because they probably wouldn't be attracted to the field. But there is a slight... Uh, increase in the amount of slight psychopathy and slight narcissism because it actually can help them and might attract them to the field. And are some of these people out there harming people? Yes. Are some of these people with problematic personalities wonderful therapists? Yes. Are there people without any personality problems that are out there harming other people and other clients? Yes. So it's all the, the above. It's yes and Everything is true. <laughs> well, that does it for that um, all-encompassing uh, episode of Psychology in Seattle. Again, if you haven't yet become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. The premium feed doesn't have any advertisements, which is kind of fun. Also, if you have thoughts about this, stories you want to tell me, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. I always love hearing from the listeners, and I'm particularly interested in this topic because I want to raise awareness around harmful professors, harmful supervisors, harmful therapists. I want people to know what's happening out there. And at the very least, if you've been harmed, uh, you should have someone uh, validate your feelings and hear you. And I'm, I'm here for you in that way. All right, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. (laughs) 